And that was uh, Magic by Coldplay. Welcome to Kitchen Radio, a fortnightly radio show where we simply talk about the wonderful world of food for about an hour. And of course, you're listening to HCC 102.1 FM in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek. My name's Rita Catoni. You might have eaten the food that my guest tonight has prepared if you're a regular at the roastery, or you might have even drunk some of the coffee that um, he makes at the goods. This afternoon, I would like to welcome the very inspiring and talented Tom Carew-Reed. Hello, Tom, and welcome to Kitchen Radio. Rita, hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And you've even been working today, so, you know, listeners might have been drinking your coffee this morning. <laughs> Double dosed. <laughs> Double shot Tom Carew-Reed today for some people. <laughs> to begin with, I'd just like to talk about that extraordinary ricotta cheesecake that was posted up on Facebook. Has that? It's, it was really inspiring, and I'd be interested to know just as a start, Point. Were people coming in and wanting that cheesecake after seeing it on um, Facebook? Definitely. And I stand um, uh, during service, I can see everyone at the till and overhear their conversations. And um, yeah, a few people did did come in specifically for it. It didn't last very long. Oh, there was only one, was there? There was only one. <laughs> How important do you think um, aesthetic is to, to the eating experience? And- well, I mean... Aesthetics are a huge important thing for me in my life in general, actually. But we eat with our eyes first. And when you're looking at something online or on Instagram, a photo of something that's, you know, making your mouth water, that's what gets people eating. Yeah. You know? Do you know, often sometimes for me, it just someone has to mention something. Like someone said to me this morning, they just had a chocolate croissant. I just couldn't get it out of my head, you know. Like I just had to go and grab a chocolate croissant. But of course, there weren't any left. Absolutely. So for me, it's just any little thing can just inspire me. And we are mm. going to get on to inspiration sure. later on as well. Now, Tom, you're a professional chef with a really, really interesting history. And I'd really love to share that with listeners, just mm. the, the journey of your cooking career and also how you come to be in Alice Springs as well. How important was food in your family growing up? Uh, it was, I think, like any traditional family, it was a centre of all of our celebrations. Any chance to feast on my mum's side of the family, it was full spread. Everyone had their things that they were really good at cooking that were always turned up, which was, you know, mum's potato bake at Christmas time. It was grandma's salmon pastry, oh, things okay. like that, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, that was, it was a big part of me growing up. I've always been food obsessed you know um to the point where you know i get told off for sneaking food from the cupboard at night time when i was a kid you know, you know. <laughs> and what were some of your first sort of cooking experiences or your memories of actually cooking or, or preparing or creating potions sure potions <laughs> there is such an element of magic in in how i feel about what I do with food um, but and I think we we did speak at one point about this funny story of um, going into mum's cupboard uh, to make a cake for my granddad um, and being the cheeky boy that I was we'd put everything we could into it including you know sometimes whole tubes of wasabi <laughs> mum would definitely you know I find out later that, that she let my grandfather know before he ate it but he was a good sport and pretended to enjoy it yeah so i guess experimenting making potions yeah there's just something so magical about combining things and then turning into something else yeah it's it's seeing what sort of what happens seeing yes yes you never know what magic's going to actually erupt there yeah absolutely so how did your professional chef career start and can you just talk about how you moved from 
music to yeah, sure. cooking? Yeah, always doing something that uses my creativity, I think, has been something that has been a theme for me all through my life. But um, I went to university to study performance music and composition. And at the time, I was living very close to the university. And I would have my classmates over to my house during break as somewhere to hang out. And I started cooking food for them. And then slowly over time, I was spending more time thinking about what I was going to make for lunch for everyone than I was doing my actual schoolwork. And I, yeah, the experience of what I could offer and how I could create a sense of community through offering food was, um, led me to then dropping out of university and, uh, starting an apprenticeship. And what were you studying? You were studying music and you were forming an instrument? Yeah, I played the saxophone. Yeah. Do you yeah. still play? I don't. Okay. No, it's a bit of a sad story. I think I, I it crushed my spirit a little bit and was I think I found that again in food. Yeah, so that you, you were able to sort of transfer that creativity from music across Absolutely. to... And music was a sort of a private thing that was, um, uh, you know, a great crutch to me through my adolescent years and then suddenly here's this other thing that allowed me to be more social and connected and I think I really craved that. I've never thought about that, that idea that cooking, you know, combines both, you know, being social and being creative and generous as well as Absolutely. that element of generosity. More butter, always. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you started your apprenticeship in Perth. That's right, yeah. And and how long were you? Well, there? I was there for about a year um, and my head chef who took me under his wing got me involved in some cooking competitions. It's very similar to what we now see in MasterChef, um, that type of black box kind of situation where you're given a bunch of ingredients and it's up to you to make the best thing that you can out of it in a certain amount of time. But it's not television, right? This no. is just about, this is just like the, the professional sort Absolutely. of, yeah. you know, opportunity for, for chefs. And these competitions, you know, we've been going for probably more than 80 years, particularly in Europe. And it's a big, it's a big, it's a big scene. But I went into doing this competition cooking and managed to get a spot on the West Australian culinary team and got flown over to Melbourne for the Good Food and Wine Festival and competed there in an open competition. And uh, yeah, I won a gold trophy for it and got offered an apprenticeship through a pretty celebrated chef over wow. there. And then I just stayed and that's where it sort of launched. Can I go back to that competition? Can I ask, what was it that you cooked? I cooked this, it was under the poultry and game category and it was like a, what are saying? It was a sous vide vanilla duck breast with confit potatoes and perfectly little turned vegetables and um, a cherry gastric sauce. It was very, wow. it was very adventurous and <laughs> it, for some reason it, it worked. Yeah. Yeah. So an opportunity arose there to work like a high-end sort of dining yeah, well, there establishment? Yeah, a, a hat restaurant, so um, similar to what some people might know as Michelin star. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that they grade restaurants here in Australia is through the use of hats. There's one as in like chef's hats? Chef's hats, yeah. And so there's one, two or three hats that you can acquire. And, yeah, so this hatted restaurant swooped in and picked me up and... Yeah, that's how I got to Melbourne. I lived there for almost 13 years. And what was that experience working in a three-hatted restaurant? Well, it wasn't as glitzy as I <laughs> thought. It was pretty harrowing, to it, to be honest. It's everything you could probably imagine a stressful 
kitchen to be. I know we were talking before about the TV show The Bear. Yeah. I haven't personally seen it. I think it's probably too triggering for me. Yeah, that might be actually. Mm. Yeah, it is quite harrowing to watch. It's very, very stressful to watch. You're dealing with a high urgency, fast paced environment that doesn't leave any room for mistakes. And, and with um, big egos Absolutely. Well. The sense of hierarchy is, uh, particularly in these high-end restaurants, is, um, you know, even if someone arrived with the same skill level as you two weeks before you, they were your superior. Mm-hmm. And starting at the bottom, all of the jobs that traditionally people didn't want to do, like gutting fish and um, all the dirty sort of bottom-of-the-barrel jobs were handed over to you, as well as, like, a lot of scapegoating for things that went wrong and yeah I ended up actually walking out of that place under a year of working there I just picked up my stuff and literally walked out and never went back it sounds like a military operation almost doesn't it like they're the you know totally. the lowest of the of the low come in and, they and get that's the exactly what it's built on that whole uh, brigade isn't it yeah. this idea of a brigade well the, sh- the chef like chef in French I believe is a um, translation of chief and you even look at the uh, standardized uniforms for chefs with the double-breasted buttons hats and uh, cravats are all based off military uniform. Yeah, it certainly was that. And is it that structured? Like there's the, the chef and the sous chef and all of that. So everybody's really aware of what their role is and what they can and can't do. Absolutely. And, you know, on some level that's restaurants at that level are able to produce the food that they mm-hmm. do because everybody is a part of a mechanism. And I guess it really all comes down to the leadership at the top. And, you know, I've had the this particular restaurant was run by a, a madman. And that trickled through the rest of his staff and it was just a very toxic, yeah. uninviting, unsupportive environment. So. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think those sort of structured workplaces can work really well if everybody is validated mm-hmm. in their work and then there's also clear opportunities to move up through the ranks. But if, if, there, if there's no sort of validation or there's no support, um, it must be very, very hard. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. Particularly if you're sensitive as well. Absolutely, and you just can't I'm sort of super sensitive to, <laughs> to those things and, you know... I used to think that that was a bad thing, but since realised that it's, you know, it's an asset that I have mm-hmm. a sensitivity not only of my own self but for other people and believe that, you know, I didn't have to write the same story with the kitchens that I'd end up one day leading myself. And it's I see my job now as a chef or if I'm leading a team in a kitchen is that, you know, my, my primary role is about making everybody feel like they have the space to share their creativity as well as, you know, just realising that you're a family and you Mm. spend most of your waking life with these people and, you know, we need to support each other. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And so where did you head next after that experience in Melbourne? Oh, I went a 360 the other way from nighttime fine dining food to little creatures in Melbourne when they used to have a dining hall on Brunswick Street, which was a fantastic place to be and it was the head chef was um, a woman as well which was at the time and this was probably only only even just 12 years ago but there was very few women leading kitchens oh really in general in the industry you know um, it's a male dominated space and in the experience of working for her name Sue Hutchins she'd ever hear this but thank you Sue (laughs) you really saved me in my journey with food I think I was very disenchanted with what the potential was for my own 
growth in cooking. And um, yeah, she got me back into finishing off my apprenticeship. And out of that and through trade school, I made a friend who was at the time doing uh, his apprenticeship at Rockpool. And we started doing competitions together and then... So the same type of competitions we were talking about before, yeah. like those chef competitions, yeah, yeah and they were culinary competitions designed for apprentices, and yeah. um, I think it was, it's the Nestle competition. So you had to use a Nestle product, product you know, heaven forbid. <laughs> we do what we have to <laughs> we do. do. Um, but he suggested to the Rockpool that um, I'd be a great asset to their their team and I um, made the jump then back into fine dining, into probably the, the best workplace I've, I've ever had in terms of the space that it gave apprentices and everyone else that worked there, the opportunity to really learn some great skills. We had an on-site fishmonger, we had a butcher and... There was enough staff to be able to support people's learning, which yeah, doesn't which, happen a lot. No, that must that's what really does make a difference, isn't it? Which, you know, to, to not all be sort of having to work so hard you don't have any capacity mm. to to learn. Yeah. He was a fantastic person to work to wow. work for actually, yeah. Wow, that's mm. a very well known restaurant. Very lucky. I mean yeah. he's come under a quite a bit of fire, I think, for underpaying staff just you know, with the George Columbaris things that were happening and um, you know it is it does happen a lot that there's chefs and particularly as a trade are probably one of the lowest trades um, in terms of what they stand to earn if they're you know any level of chef until you start getting up to head chefs and executive mm. chefs it's quite base um, wages pretty low it's starting to change but what, what is it I'm just curious to know because um, you're also talking really long working hours and mm. quite difficult conditions as well yeah, well, I mean, I guess maybe for an entry-level chef who has a qualification, it's probably around between 60 and 70 a year. And, I mean, you put that against, you know, people who are plumbers or yeah. builders even, you know, there's there's not even a union actually yeah. around a chef's yeah. union at yep. all. It doesn't yeah. exist because I think we've gotten so used to taking so much so much on within so, the job like yeah. it's just not just going there is it it's and a bit of a rite of passage like people just see this it's very much the harder you work the it's a rite of passage to work these slog hours yeah and, so it sounds like there's like a level of like accepted exploitation yeah i mean it's mili- militarized for yeah. sure and you know you just get on with it and you t- grin and bear it and you soldier on yeah, and because you're all thinking that there's something at the end that's going to be worth it. Yeah, it's that opportunity. If you putting in more work, you'll be noticed. You'll be given. You know, it's all about who you know in the food world, particularly in restaurant industry. It's the restaurateurs that have the money to make the things happen. You know. Yeah. So you were in Rockpool for another year, was it? I or? stayed there for three. Oh, wow, that's a long years. time. So did you finish your apprenticeship there? Then? Finished it there, worked there as a qualified chef for around a year, and then I decided I needed to go travelling around the world. I um, went to the Americas for probably about six months, cooked all through there, fell in love with the the market culture as well and, and the very real in seasonality of everything that was in front of me you know there's no strawberries in the middle of summer yeah you know it was beautiful that really inspired me i think yeah so did you move back to melbourne after your south american was mainly south and central american yeah back there and um 
started working for another coffee roastery, um, specialty coffee roaster called Code Black, who had uh, uh, many cafes around the um, CBD area. And my job, once I'd worked there for a couple of years, was then to be the chef that would go into new premises and build the kitchen, build the menu, set it up, and then pass it on. And so that was my job for a long time, was like birthing new new spaces to be, and I loved it. That must have given you a level of creativity Absolutely. there as well. Yeah. And, you know, it, so much of the opportunities that I've been given are from people who saw something in me, and I think they saw that the passion that I that I bring to and the attention to detail and the pride that I have in everything that I make, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. And then... After that? After that, I then did another 360. I, my brother had a child or fell pregnant quite at a quite young age and I returned to Perth because uh, you know, I wanted to be there for him but also be a part of that experience. I'd spent so much time away from home that I felt like I was missing out on these really important life things. So went back there and, you know, I got a job working on the mines. Wow, that is a 360. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> to go from sort of Melbourne, you know, cafe culture to to cooking on mine sites. And, yeah. you know, I've eaten the food on mine sites and it's uh, pretty stock standard. Yeah, well, I did everything that I possibly could in those spaces yeah. to keep myself inspired by it. And is there anything positive, do you think, about working like, on the mindsets? I think, I mean, look, they, everything has a recipe down to how many grams of a carrot you need to put into this particular dish. You know, they, oh, really? They manage their stock management because everything that your ingredients that you're receiving are all driven up by truck. You need yeah. it to last for the, the whole week until you get the next load. So, you know, you can't, there's, it's very highly managed. But again, you know, it really came down to the person who was cooking it and how much what you saw your opportunity was as a chef feeding these these people who are working long days. And, you know, I, I always liked being that person, I think. And so, I, you know, I did my best, but at the end of the day, <laughs> I had to go. How many years were you doing Two that? Two years. Flying and what was the menu like? It was all <laughs> written for all of it particularly or depending on what mine company you're working for they're all written in some office somewhere in sydney and then you'd get them sent to you and here it was you had you didn't have any say about what was being made everything was ordered for you here is the ingredients list there was no recipe ever it was more like here's your chicken stroganoff and this is what you're allowed to put in it and how much of it and so how you cooked it was the only part of what was different about, mm-hmm. say, between chefs, you know. And do you think they were making decisions based on, you know, who they thought the demographic were of the FIFO workers? Yeah, I guess they would have had some thought in that. Also, yeah. There's, there were very, we were constantly asking whether or not we took suggestions yeah. at the lunch line. The workers were asking. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, a lot of them just wanted... Um, you know, steak and chips. Yeah, I was going to say, like roast steak, chips, I imagine. Yeah, but we, I think there's a part, was a part of a duty of care to their own workers that they had to provide a nutritionally balanced, uh, like, options. And it was really up to them what they chose, but we had to include, you know, always two vegetarian dishes and um, two proteins and a type of grain, like all of those sorts of things. 
And was there a team of people working there? There's a team, yeah. There's a big team. People are working around the clock generally, aren't they, as yeah, well? Yeah, it's 24 hours cooking. So yeah. you'd have a night town team and then, which, you know, that was the worst shift you could get, which was at 9pm to 9am for two weeks in a row, no days off. 12, 12 hour days, 12 yeah. Hour days. And then you come back and have a bit of time off? A week off, usually. The time went really fast, to tell you that, that messed with my clock there. Yeah. <laughs> And then from that experience, you ended up, not ended up here, because this isn't the, the, the end of your life being here. But no, you, <laughs> could be. But you come to be, how do you come to be in Alice Springs? Um, I came up here with a friend with the interest and the idea of parenting together. Yeah, that brought me to town. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do here, but I was, yeah, preparing myself. For so was the other party from here? Yes. Yes, okay. Yeah, I came here for that journey and after being here for a while we both decided that that wasn't what we were going to do together anymore and so I was left in a space of like thinking okay well what what can I do here I feel like that scenario got me here but there's something about here that I felt like I needed to stay and there was something to do yeah Hmm. there's definitely a need I think in Alice Springs for some exciting cooking and that's no, no disrespect to the establishments that that are here and the work that you're doing at, at do you but it, there's always been a need for um, a little bit more of a little bit more of excitement I think yeah, within sure. the um, establishments here well and it's hard to that um, you know our access to up here fresh produce to um, like gourmet items and good oils and spices and so you know all of those things that we sort of maybe take for granted in larger cities we just don't we have to try harder yeah to get it here yeah and there's it's really hard to be like i think inspired that's what i find i mean if you go to markets in like i love going to the markets in cairns and in adelaide they're my favorite markets mm. you just go there and you could you're just inspired by the produce that's there Absolutely. whereas i mean that was the good thing i think about when the food for alice markets were on you could sort of go there and you know buy something really local and fresh and work out what you're going to cook for the mm. week but again the quantities are quite small sure. as well so it's really you know it's, it's not it's not for a for bulk cooking, but it's um, yeah, it, it is hard to be inspired here. Yeah, and I think that that um, that puts a uh, limitation on on food businesses in town on in terms of what they can provide yeah. and what's available to them. You know, like the cafes in town, bread is a huge is a huge story, um, and where we get our bread rolls and mm. first sandwiches that we sell in shops here is that you know most of it's from. Woolworths, Coles, thank God for the bakery in town. I think yeah. that, that for me, it's probably the best bakery I've ever been to. Yeah, but to you be can honest. imagine for a long time yeah. there was, the bakery wasn't there. So it was just pretty much, you know, bake your own bread or, you know, yeah. go to Woolies or Coles. And so. people are sort of forced into uh, exploring their own relationship with food. Yeah, definitely. Because of that. Yeah. yeah. And there's such a scene of people like yourself and the people that come on the show that are you know, real foodies because yeah. they've been, they have to make it exciting for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I lived out at Bush for a long time, for like um, seven years I lived out in Yindamu and the cooking I did there was really exciting, but you had to be really innovative mm. and you had to sort of, you know, look at what you've got in your pantry and know full well that, you know, you might not get any produce or anything for a couple of weeks. Mm. And it was it was actually quite exciting and, and yeah. challenging as I, well. I sort of, I really thrive on, on that, to be honest with you. Like I, 
when you're in the city and you really have everything as an option. Yeah, it's like, it's what, like do you do? what do you do? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I, I enjoy um, having the limitations. It really stirs my creativity, yeah. actually. Well, um, speaking of creativity, we're going to go for a mid-show break and talk more about creativity and recipes. Um, we're going to be talking about magic and cooking, and so a lot of the music today has got a bit of a magic or transformational theme, but we're going to listen to Dirty Jeans by um, Magic Dirt. Tell me about magic in the future. Ooh, well, to start with, me and magic, and I guess I've always been very attracted to esoteric mystical things um fairies and goblins and um a part of that story i was telling you about cooking for my baking um surprise cakes for my grandfather was along the same space as making potions you know yeah. i was always in the garden mixing leaves and things and yeah so i guess that sort of naturally translated into my food when i started to formally explore that i think yeah. So you did this Ayurvedic. You did an Ayurvedic. Mm. Ayurvedic training, um, uh, cooking training. Cooking training yeah. in Hawaii. Can you tell yeah. me about what that actually involved? So based on uh, Ayurvedic principles, it's learning about how different foods affect your doshas, which is you know, the composition of elemental energies in your body. And mm-hmm. certain foods have calming or fire-like action in your body depending on what your constitution is and something that I learnt from that space which was sort of the complete opposite of these high intense sometimes aggressive cooking environments in these restaurants was this idea of creating a sattva in the space in which you're cooking which is roughly translates into many things but it's about a peacefulness and the idea that when you create a peaceful space around the food that you're cooking you you have the opportunity to put your intention into that food whether it's for you or somebody else and you know uh, that's where food as medicine comes through for me those spaces yeah the cooking spaces for me are very important i'm very sensitive to my surroundings and sound and um, particularly the music I'm cooking it's always on when I'm when I'm cooking and yeah it just allows me to I guess yeah focus on the people and maybe I'm making the food for I really truly believe that you can feel the love in food when someone's cooked it for you yeah um, you can also taste the bitterness <laughs> You know, you can really, you can tell when somebody cares about something yeah. and it's small little things that that can really show your love, you know. Yeah. So how important is it then to, to love what you're doing? Hugely. In that career timeline that we talked about before, um, there's intermittent spots of that where I think that me wanting to change the direction I was going with food came out of a real sense of, disillusionment and disenchantment with food because I wasn't able to make what I wanted to make Mm -hmm. or put in the energy that I, you know, or be cooking really for the people I wanted to be cooking for. 
I mean, but how do you do that as a professional chef? Like, I mean, I, I've sort of never been interested in becoming a professional chef because I, I've done other things with my life, I suppose, and for me, cooking is, is a very personal thing. Mm. And if I'm putting that energy into it, I, I really only want to be cooking for people people I love, is what I say. Well, I think it's taken me my whole career to realise that that's what I want to, actually. And, um, you know, I've learnt so much about food as a as a career and as a business you know I know I've gone in every direction you can to sort of come back to a place where I realized that it, it food is such a personal thing to me yeah. and like I do care about how it's received and mm-hmm. you can't you also can't please everybody and when you're in a, um, a restaurant uh, business setting you you know you're trying your best to make what people would want mm-hmm. and no one's ever going to be totally happy with that but also uh, I think when I'm in those spaces of working in kitchens I tend to see my own relationship with food and and me cooking at home starts to fall away I'm you know losing that enchantment with Mm. food that I have and when I've gone in and out of the um, food industry and I would often supplement my income with doing disability support work Mm -hmm. which I found um, was a way that I could offer the care that I I have that I sort of try and funnel through my food and when that doesn't feel like I can do that you know that was always a space where Mm. I felt like I could extend the care that I want to offer people yeah I come to a point of of, you know realizing that I'm at a space where I only really want to cook in a professional chef restaurant space when it's when I truly have the space to one cultivate that space where the food is is um, being cooked and Mm. then also you know all the other details of it like the setting and the lighting and the whole space I think I'm sort of transitioning out of just food into the whole spatial the the whole experience the whole experience yeah yeah. you know food is always uh, a commercial venture it's do you think if you were able to take out the the need to to make a profit if you were sort of looking at it as uh, as a lifestyle mm. you know therefore you could potentially put more intention into that sandwich you're cooking mm-hmm. etc do you think if that would make a difference because all these food places at the end of the day I mean I've often been told it's very hard to make a profit out of food you're you kind of make your profit out of mm. out of alcohol sure I think that there is a real tendency to see the need to be able to do everything and offer everything mm. that really dilutes your ability to put the, the most into the food that you're creating. And, you know, I think the, the most successful food ventures out there are ones that have five things on their menu. Mm-hmm. And they do those things really well and they do it passionately and people... I think those businesses get to a point where they don't have to worry about the financial part of it because, like, they've allowed themselves to be able to really put that love into their food and um, people come back for it. Yeah. I mean, I I talked to you about having this bagel, this salmon bagel in New York. The person behind the counter making me this bagel and they toasted it and they just spent time with it and I was watching them do it and it struck me that... They were making it in the same way that I would make it for myself. You know, they made sure it was toasted properly, it was buttered properly, that mm. the filling was on there. It was, And 
it did strike me that that doesn't happen very often. You don't often see people preparing food with that much intention. Mm. I mean, it wasn't obviously... And sort of joy. Like, I yeah. know that when I'm in a real... Like, I get into these real flow states when I'm cooking, I guess, because I've done it for so long, I have a confidence in my ability to even just move around the kitchen and have one thing going here and yeah. that going there. And it, it is a real joy state, actually, yeah. when I'm able to... I sort of arrive in the moment and there's all the orders there and sort of everything else that might be happening for me in my outside life has to um, yeah. I have to put aside I have to put aside that and um, I can be just in that moment and you know there's a real sense of achievement I think when I focus myself and are able to uh, able to create something that I'm proud of yeah because I mean what you're talking about here is both like process and product that both of those things are important. It's not mm-hmm. just about, you know, the, the end justifies the means. It's just that you have to give attention to both the process of cooking and enjoy that as much as to the, the end product, Absolutely. the magic at the end. It's a, it's a dinner and a show. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely with me. <laughs> I'm always singing around the kitchen and, you know, maybe a bit of a show pony. I love an, <laughs> I love a, uh, an open kitchen. Yeah. Um, I do see also, even though I'm behind the scenes making stuff, I really... I. It's really important to me the relationships I build with the people who are consuming the things that I'm making. And I, um, I see, you know, having a hospitality space that people can come to, it's a real opportunity to, you know, be changed in someone's day if they're arriving and they're weighed down by this and often they're coming in, you know, I need a coffee, I need a snack, you know, mm. I need you know, of whatever interaction they might be needing, you know, you become sensitive to how people arrive in front of you yeah. and kind of gauge what it is that they might be needing from you. And I do love that relaxed thing, I suppose, at the roastery is that you, know, you often serve your own food. Like you've actually, mm. I mean, that's how we got talking. You know, you actually, Absolutely. you know, gave me the tort or tart. Yeah. Totally. It wasn't I love just that you're in the kitchen not and just, you know, there's that flow between the kitchen mm. and, and the... Um, the customer is really lovely. Well, it's a personal thing, you yeah. know. I make I've made something that is now going into your body, yeah. and, you know, hopefully nourishing you yeah. on whatever level it needs to. Yeah, sadly not for much longer. But let's talk about one of your favourite recipes um, sure. before we finish up. Can you tell me what we what recipe you're going yeah. to share? Well, I did have a big think about this, and I was like, oh, I've got to be you know, pull out these fantastical gastronomic things that I would make in these restaurants. But then I, you know, thought about what dish do I truly enjoy cooking the most? And it always sort of comes back to um, Italian cuisine. There's something so... You're talking to the right mm, person. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, it's um, always my, my safe and my Fresh pasta. Spot, yeah. I absolutely love... It's the only way I eat pasta. And I love the, the you know, I have to put away a whole afternoon to cook this thing, um, make the pasta dough, let it rest, roll it out, all of those things. But the sauce, yeah, the sauce that I love making is uh, pasta alla norma, which is a eggplant-based um, tomato dish. And I guess when I speak about recipes, it's been a long time since I felt like I maybe needed a recipe to follow. And it was sort of maybe a dish that came out of a long relationship with many different vegetables and eggplant to me is just one of my most favorite things to cook with it is a very versatile vegetable Mm. yeah it just it adds it it's textural it's um it 
it is a carrier for all the other things you're adding to it, spices, and I guess if I have to give, give you a recipe for that, I'd, um, I'd always judge my measurements by how big my eggplant is. Yeah. So. And you can just do get. I mean, I, I've, you know, all my Italian cooking, I've never used a recipe for Italian cooking, mm. so it's just, you don't have to give exact recipes, oh. exact amounts on this show at all. I'll just, I'll tell you a story then. <laughs> With the, so the first thing I'm cooking is my eggplant and the spices that I'm using. And I'd said to you before, one of my favourite my other favourite vegetable is fennel. It has a similar way of reacting to the things that you do to it. Um, but I often use full toasted um, fennel seeds in my cooking. And uh, learning through um, my Ayurvedic studies is that it's, uh, it aids in, in digestion, particularly with something that's so rich like a glutinous pasta and oil and garlic and all of those things so I'm sweating that off and that's probably the the longest period of constant surveillance in the pan for me and I cook it right down for probably about half an hour until it's yeah until it's caramelized are you salting it well this is a funny thing about eggplant too is that the the salting of the eggplant does it acts to draw the water out but a lot of people I guess now with genetically modified vegetables is that there's this idea that you're extracting the bitterness that oh, Which exists. is what I've always thought. Because sometimes, like, when I handle eggplant, I actually, my hands... Tingly. Uh, yeah, it's like they've been touching acid. Mm. Yeah. I get like that too, but not every time. So no, it just not depends. Every time yeah. But the eggplants, particularly the ones that we get up here, have been genetically modified so that they don't have that same bitterness anymore. It's a nightshade mm. plant as well, so it would, it does, a lot of people have that reaction to it but once you've cooked it down so when you're cooking are you like frying this are you slicing it yeah. and frying it in olive oil I'm like dicing it up I've also I've diced up my one large brown onion same size and that they're going in together with probably too much olive oil yeah <laughs> I mean, never enough, He's really. talking to the right person. This dish is pretty yeah. much, I'd say... And olive oil does... I mean, sorry, um, eggplant does like does. love olive oil. It just loves mm. to drink it up. So it does. When, once you get to that point of it's being fully caramelised, yeah. you know, everything's sort of breaking down. And I'm adding uh, some cherry tomatoes as well. You know, if I can get the good quality tomatoes, I'm... Um, concass. Protect. Okay. Yeah. Concast um, tomatoes is when you're sort of blanching them and then peeling the skin off. Yeah, I do that quite a lot. Mm. Yeah. And then hulling out the seeds and yeah. then making a passata that way. Mm. Definitely fresh, right? Definitely. I mean, if the you flavor's can get quite it. different. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I'd settle for a tin tomato, but, you know, what I've learned with any type of tin tomato is, is you've got to find a brand that works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, agree. I think the only one I ever use is Muti. Me too. Yeah. Muti seems to be the only one. Absolutely. Yeah. There's always a bit of a bitterness in, in those tin tomatoes, so I'm adding a, some sweetness somewhere. Usually that might be a little bit of brown sugar, but hopefully when you're you're sautéing your onions that you're bringing the sweetness out in that anyway. Mm. So when are you doing the onions? Are you doing that them at the very beginning? Doing that at the beginning. With the eggplant. Yeah. Yep. Like and garlic pitch. there as well? Did I miss that? Was I not... Garlic, I, I like to put that in once the eggplant and the onion has caramelised. Okay. Because there's a tendency for it to catch on on whatever pan and and 
there's like yeah, physically catch yeah yep. you're on the bottom of the pan and you can really when you burn garlic you can you it's can terrible. taste it you have to throw it out yeah yep. so I, I like put that in halfway mm-hmm. where I'm not using vigorous heat and there's just when I'm adding mm. more liquids into the sauce and whole garlic or are you chopping it up crushing it mm-hmm. yeah just using the back of my mm-hmm. knife with a little bit of sprinkle of salt you can kind of yeah macerate it into mm-hmm. a paste yeah so where are we at the posada and the tomatoes i love hard herbs as well oregano thyme because they're hard shaped Heart. Oh, true. I did say I said hard, but they oh, are right. actually heart shaped. I just I just picked some oregano earlier Gosh. today, and I looked down at it and I thought, oh, it's a heart shape. It's a cute funny. thing to say, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> but you said hard herbs. Hard herbs. Meaning the flavours they're called. Yeah, and just the uh, I guess the the structure of the plant. Yes. You know, like yeah. as it's opposed like to not like a basil or correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and fresh. Fresh herbs are my best friend it's also another witchy thing that i like to do yeah and it's hard in alice springs i think it really is yeah, yeah. particularly in summer this mm. time of the year yeah and that's is that it salt yeah pepper i mean that's salt pepper and like probably a little bit more olive oil yeah and no no wine no i don't tend to you know i guess i would use maybe a little bit of liquid and maybe it is wine if i'm drinking a glass yeah, which yeah. i usually am when i'm making that dish just to deglaze the pan and, sure. and make sure I'm getting all those beautiful caramelised flavours that are stuck to the bottom. Now can I just, just go back a step? So with the eggplant, how long are you actually cooking the eggplant for? I'd say probably about half an hour, but it gets okay. it's a visual thing yeah, of watching yeah. the flesh fall off the yeah. skin. You know? So the, the final product is like you're, you're not looking at that and seeing cubes of eggplant, no, etc. It's, it's dissolved it's, it's like a sauce. It. It's Absolutely. a true sauce. And then what's your favourite pasta to have this with? I like a nice uh, thick, wide tagliatelle-style mm-hmm. pasta, something that's going to... Or a pappadelle as well. Pappadelle, that's yeah. probably the one I'm searching for. Yeah. That's yeah. thicker than tagliatelle. And homemade. And homemade. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And are you serving this with parmesan or is it... Uh, parmesan, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also back on the fennel train is it needs oh. something fresh. So I always serve it with a fresh, a thinly sliced fennel salad. Yeah. Probably a little bit of red onion, um, orange segments, and maybe something bitey like mm-hmm. uh, rocket, and then just simple dressed, nothing. Olive oil and vinegar. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Mm. Oh wow, this sounds amazing. I know, I'm hungry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your pasta, you're doing an egg pasta or an eggless pasta? Egg pasta, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've recently oh. done an eggless pasta with um, durum wheat and deep, t- t- yeah. Tipo double O together, mm-hmm. and it was actually really good. Yeah, oh, cool. um, and bound yeah. together with uh, oil and water, yeah. or just water. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Right. Well, there you go. Insp- inspiration, and also eggplants are freely, you not know, freely available, but they're available at the moment. And they're a really good price. Mm. But and I didn't know that about that the, wasn't a plug um, for Woolworths, though, was it? Well, no. I've actually <laughs> I got mine from Premium Pete, so true. and I've got some. A lot of people have got eggplants in the garden, so it's a good well, one. There's a cooking. there's another great supplier that yeah. really. Yeah. Um, makes a difference in this makes town. Makes a massive Tony's difference. Just yeah, Tony's great. great. You're keeping the skin on the eggplants, I'm assuming. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. that often can make a difference to the flavour as well. Well, yeah, most of the time in the vegetables, you're you're eating most of the flavours coming from the 
few millimetres underneath the skin. Yeah. So, I, you know, if I don't need to, I don't peel things. We're going to have to wrap it up there, Tom. Thank you Alrighty. so much. What are you cooking this weekend? Well, I'm going camping, actually, straight okay. after this. And um, I think that's another show, what Tom cooks when he goes camping. <laughs> well, I love <laughs> camp cooking. I go for it. That's the best bit for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, setting up a camp. I love it. And working out what you're going to cook. Absolutely. And, yeah, yeah. I think I'm more on an appetizer um, uh, duty this one so I'm just going to do uh, campfire uh, sweet corn okay just dressed with some nice like paprika and butter and garlic lime juice maybe yeah, yeah like yeah. kind of sort of Mexican style yeah you know, something fresh you know something for your hands so inspiring Tom thank you so much for coming on my show I really really appreciate your, sort of you sharing your you know live experience with cooking and and all the best as well and Thanks, I hope Rita. to see you and I hope to hear and see you again on my show really soon you definitely will that's great it's been a pleasure thank you <laughs> you've been listening to Kitchen Radio my guest today has been Tom Carew-Reed we've certainly gone over time but I am going to play a final song called um, Information by Van Morrison and this was just after talking to Tom talking about the capacity of the desert for people to come to the desert and to be have their lives truly transformed <laughs>